Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 135 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Morning, Mark. Um, things starting to look a little better after a stronger finish to the first month of the year than uh, the rest of the month. So um, not saying that you know we move to all-time highs from here, but it's encouraging that you know, the bleeding has stopped at least a little bit for now. I think the market has been taken back and they've been too bearish about earnings. And, and I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And one of the, the heavy hitters, one of the big boys, Google, just announced uh, last night and had a very good report and also announced a 20 for one stock split. That'll get people moving. So um, I guess just to give people an idea of what that is, can you just briefly explain what a stock split is and what it does? Yeah. So what it does is it uh, proportionally increases the number of outstanding shares and at the same time cuts the share price. Mm -hmm. So it is more um, for show. Right. But the the psychology behind it does tend to help stocks in the short term. Now, Mm -hmm. I don't have a specific stat to back that up. That is just my observation, Mark. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Apple's done it several times. Tesla did it recently. Yes. I mean, um, rumor mill. Can we talk about rumors? Sure. So rumor mill, you know, Amazon could be on the block. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned that. So, you know, that's that's definitely something that we could hear tonight. It may not happen. Right. Uh, when they report earnings. But I think it's just the psychology behind it. People have more shares. Um, it's more attractive for retail investors to buy them. Because it's cheaper. And the other thing I think it does, Mark, is it makes the options derivatives more economical. And that mm-hmm. might be over over the head of a lot of our listeners. Yeah. But I do think it could it's things that tend to help the stock price. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it doesn't change, you know, what Google's worth or anything like that. No. It just, you know, essentially it uh, you know, creates more shares and it lowers the share price. That's right. Right. Um, so, you know, I think it's attractive and people are probably cheering retail investors that, hey, they're finally going to be able to afford to to buy a share at Google because I think as of last night, it was trading around 2700 bucks a share or something like that. Um, so it just it opens it up so that more people can afford to, to participate in the gains of Google. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so, yeah, which is good. So we'll see. Yeah, Amazon reports tonight. Apple already reported um, still in the thick of earnings season here, but things look pretty good so far. Yeah. And I think, again, I think it's taken the market uh, by surprise. I think the market was way too bearish in, in January personal opinion. I think the Fed is doing the best they can to walk the tight line of um, raising when they say they're going to raise, you know, being, you know, communicating to the market, transmitting how they're going to do it, when they're going to do it. There was fear that they were going to raise in January. They didn't. And so, you know, so far, so good for the bulls, given the carnage in the first three and a half weeks of January. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, as we always do, Matt, we'll start off by uh, taking the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on February 1st. Uh, so again, we'll start back up next week with the, uh, the, the current month performance and also the year to date, but we'll just stick with year to date for now. Okay. And this data is from Coifin. Uh, S&P 500 index down 4.61% to start the year. The Dow down 2.57% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index down 8.98% to start the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 8.58%. Vanguard International ETF X United States is down 2% so far year to date. The three-month T-bill yield sitting at 0.19%. The two-year Treasury yield at 1.17%. And the 10-year Treasury yield at 1.8%. couple observations real quick on this for listeners. First is we started off a majority of last year where, say, the NASDAQ drastically underperformed the Dow and the S&P. And look what happened by year end. Mm -hmm. So it's not to say, listeners and viewers, that can't happen again this year. I'm not saying it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But just to look at these numbers and say, well, NASDAQ's down nine is going to underperform the rest of the year. Not necessarily going to be the case. Yeah, yeah, because that was the case for most of the year uh, or the first half of last year is that the NASDAQ was trailing and it came back. Just want to throw that out there. Um, And obviously, as you were alluding to, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank Chair Jerome Powell signaled last week that the central bank is prepared to raise interest rates in March for the first time in four years. Um, Next big headline is that GDP grew at uh, plus 6.9 percent annualized in Q4 of 2021, stronger than Wall Street expected despite the spread of the latest COVID variant during the quarter. Um, and Wall Street was expecting annualized growth of five and a half percent. So we came in above expectations, which is a good thing, right? It just I think it just gives more weight to why the Fed is saying, hey, OK, now is time to raise interest rates. Yeah, exactly. And the other piece that I think it's important for listeners and viewers to connect the dots on in regards to GDP is in regards to inflation and supply chains, right? So I think one thing Wall Street listeners is really paying close attention to right now, any data point they can get, any comment from a conference call for for corporate earnings releases, they're trying to figure out, is the supply chain getting better? And the tea leaves, is it, it is, but probably not as quick as people want it to. Mm-hmm. It doesn't I, happen at the snap of a finger. <laughs> it doesn't. And I'm still in this camp, and, and maybe it's the conservative side of me. It, I still think it's going to get worse before it gets better, mm-hmm. um, and I'm expecting it to peak sometime in the, in the spring. Now, we won't really know when it peaked until hindsight, mm-hmm. right, because you could have conflicting data. But in a little bit, I do have a piece I want to share with listeners that tends to be a very key piece of data that will, I think, shed some light on where the supply chains stand right now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, great. Um, first piece of research I had from this week uh, is a magazine cover. I'm bringing back the magazine covers. You know what? I think there's a ton of legitimacy with this, Mark. <laughs> I really do. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost looks like a perfect storm, uh, no pun intended, with what this magazine <laughs> cover is. And I'll have Jenna throw this up on the screen for those of you watching on YouTube. But I, I suggest you, you check it out. Yourself, Jen, I love it. You check it out because it's kind of interesting. So uh, it was a, uh, a tweet from Ryan Dietrich uh, last week. 
And he says, what is sentiment like? We have a magazine cover with bulls stuck in a snowstorm. <laughs> Historic put call ratios earlier this week and AAII bears above 50% for the first time since May of 2020. This doesn't mean stocks can't go lower, but a lot of bad news is being priced in here. So let's break this down for a second. So the first piece is the, the magazine cover. It is a a bull that's, you know, three quarters of the way buried by a, a snowstorm. And on the front of Bloomberg Business Week, it's titled The Big Chill, uh, alluding to maybe the, the bull market is over. Right. Um, an interesting thing that I didn't know that. Do you know why, you know, when markets are in uptrends, they're called bull markets and markets are in downtrends, they're called bear markets. Do you know I, the actually, real I actually do know this. OK. What do you what do you because I read something and I was like, oh, I didn't think of it that way, but that makes sense. It's how but, the animals attack. That's right. It's how they fight. So bulls fight by going from the bottom up with their horns and bears fight by clawing from top down. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so it's a picture of a bull uh, in a mound of snow. Team, team trivia at some point. Um, you know, alluding to the fact that maybe, you know, we're in for some rough times, which I think find just looking at this kind of comical but um the next piece was historic put call ratios earlier this week so not going to get into it too much but you know uh puts and calls they're called options they're derivatives uh pretty much you know layman's terms buying a put gives you the option to sell a certain stock or an etf that tracks an index at a certain price to somebody else and typically when people are pessimistic they buy puts for protection Right. Yep. And the opposite, if you buy a call, it gives you the right to buy a stock or an ETF that tracks an index at a certain price, expecting the share price to go up. Well, people have been buying puts hand over fist, hand over fist as protection to if the market falls. So, again, that's another very bearish reading, in my opinion. Um, the AAII bears survey that we get, Matt, we've talked about that before. Um, you know, just people overly pessimistic. So you take the survey, are you bullish, are you bearish, or are you neutral? And bears have a commanding lead right now on the next couple of months on returns for the stock market. So again, not saying that this is the bottom and we're going to move to all-time highs from here, but like Ryan said, there's a lot of pessimistic news being priced into the market right now. Um. <laughs> What I want to say, Mark, is I, I get concerned when I see these types of, of, of magazine covers, these headlines on financial news sites, when you have like these peak points of, of pessimism or bearishness in the market. And the one that really got to me over the last week is there was a financial news station where um, someone was talking the the crowd or the audience of this specific individual is what I call retail investors. And this specific individual was last Thursday recommending a exchange traded fund that was short a specific growth oriented um, fund. Mm -hmm. Okay. Can we, I mean, can we just say it? Go ahead. Jim Cramer. Yes. <laughs> and so, um, on CNBC. And what happened was, is on Thursday, he was recommending to his viewers to take and buy a fund that only makes money if this specific other fund goes down in value. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
And through yesterday, that I actually have updated numbers on that for you today that I just saw this morning. Okay, well, through yesterday, it rebounded like 18 or 19% just since Friday morning at 930. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's roughly there. That's what the numbers are. And saw. it's concerning to me, Mark, because you have retail investors that are, you know, trying to time this market, right? And I had nothing wrong with having you know, a, a small amount and a speculative count that is not reliant on your overall financial plan. You're not trying to pay the rent with the money. You're not, you know, again, that's your aggressive money. But when I see somebody go on TV and recommending to retail investors to buy stuff that's short the market, especially with where the market was, I, I, I was just, I was taken back. Mm-hmm. I was actually in the car and I had, I was flipping through the stations and that segment came on and I actually listened to it live. You should have saw the look on my face. Mm-hmm. And then look at the carnage. Not even a week later, almost 20% loss. Right. Yeah, just because they're on a, you know, a fa- financial media news outlet doesn't mean that they're an expert or they're going to get everything right, right? Yeah, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just concerning. Yeah. And then very- you see headlines like this and, you know, you got someone saying, wow, Bloomberg, that's a, that, that's a legitimate news source. You know, I, I think I need to take a closer look at this. Mm-hmm. And this is from a week ago. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I already look, <laughs> look what happened the past couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I'm concerned. I'm mm-hmm. concerned because I think a lot of investors get influenced by these types of sensationalism in these headlines. And I'm just fearful that they are going to make. Um, knee-jerk reactions that affect their longer-term financial situation. Yeah. yeah good way of saying it? Good way to put it. Okay. Yep. Um, next thing I had, uh, I stumbled across a research paper written by Jamie Catherwood back in 2019 titled uh, The Factor Archives Momentum. And in this paper, Jamie discusses the speculative rubber boom back in 1910. The rubber boom. The rubber boom. So what gave me pause is that you know, when I was reading this article, it sounded eerily similar to what has gone on since the pandemic with, you know, crypto, meme stocks, day trading, all of this that came from the pandemic in 2020, right? So I just wanted to read a little piece from this because I, I think it's, you know, I just want to show people that what happened after 2020 in the markets and all this speculation was not the first time that it happened. And I'll tell you what, it's not going to be the last time that it happens. Absolutely not. So he says the rubber boom in the early 20th century London offers a perfect case study of how strong stock returns originally justified by growing earnings can quickly morph into a speculative boom. Investors chased returns, herded into rubber company shares, and ignored information that indicated a reversal was likely. Coming off the back of a bicycle mania at the end of the 19th century, another new technological innovation requiring tires had just started rolling off the assembly lines in America. A lot larger ones. The automobile. These two new forms of transportation, particularly the automobile, led to a burgeoning demand for tires and consequently rubber. While rubber prices soared higher, so did shares of rubber companies and plantations reaping increasingly large profits. Observing a combination of steadily climbing share prices and substantial dividends, it did not take long for the investment public to plow their capital into shares of rubber companies. Suddenly, what had previously been a justified boom in profitable rubber companies turned into a speculative fever fueled by retail investors. 
Stories quickly spread around London of a city merchant who quit his job to day trade rubber <laughs> shares full time and a group of hotel guests that started a trading operation out of their room in a Swiss ski resort. This is in 1910. 1910. So again, this stuff has happened in the past. That's one example of it. And I can bet my bottom dollar that it's going to happen again. Right. So I I don't use the word G guarantee very often. Yeah, I guarantee. Yeah. Another mania is going to happen. Absolutely. It's human. It's human behavior It is. It's who we are. It is. So, you know, while people and you always hear the story about the person that got an early mark, mm-hmm. you know, that 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 cousin, that 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 coworker at, at work. And it's like, oh, I, I need to get some of that action. Right. Right. And I had this conversation with a buddy the other day. And it's like, again, it's you know, it's one of those things where we live in this age of. Everyone has all the information out in the world at their fingertips with their phone. And everyone is just showing how well they've done on a certain investment, but they don't show you the opposite side of the coin or show you their losers. They don't show you the P&L, the profit and loss. Absolutely not. People only talk about their winners. Yeah. You know, you're not sitting there, you know, working on your yard and your neighbor's next door. Your neighbor doesn't sit there and say, oh, I made a bad decision. I bought that short ETF mm-hmm. that Kramer recommended last Thursday. I'm down 20%. Right. No, he's going to sit there and say that, you know, I bought XYZ at the bottom a week ago and I'm up. Mm-hmm. Again, and again, this is not to say that um, I'm not trying to, to poo poo crypto or anything like that and say it's just a speculation. It could very well be around for a long time. I'm just saying that, you know, I think the narrative was that, you know, this was a speculative environment of the likes that we've never seen before. And that's just not true. The other Whether co- it's, you know, SPACs, you know, SPACs was a big thing. Sure. IP, companies going IPOing when they we've were talked bleeding about that money. Before. Right. You know, the the, um, the best analogy I have for our modern day age with crypto probably has to do with the dot com bubble of the early 2000s, which was, you know, people were buying anything that had a dot com with it in the late 90s. They literally were. Mm-hmm. And think of how many cryptocurrencies are out there right now. I don't have a number. Mm-hmm. I don't track the sector. So <clears throat> I know there's a lot, though. It's got to be thousands. Okay. At I was going to say hundreds. hundreds. Yeah. yeah. There's going to be a lot, right? And at some point, my opinion is that you're going to have a washout at some point because all of these can't be supported. Mm-hmm. Right. It's just my opinion. Um, but as to the, you know, the long term outcome, no one knows. Right. This is why, at at the end of the day, I prefer to own shares of a company that provides a service or creates a product that has earnings. You know, that's why I prefer to invest capital in that manner. Mm -hmm. It's tangible. I see where it's at. Mm -hmm. Just a different philosophy. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, I think with a lot of the younger generations, you know, they're... uh, a lot of people, I think, are super concentrated in in crypto, which is, you know, I'm not saying is a good thing or a bad thing, but I think people just have to understand the risks associated. And a lot of people make their wealth because they hold super concentrated positions that work out. And that's great. Dig a little deeper on that. That's an important point, though. So, so let's look around with all these wealthy people that are out there. Mark Cuban made his money on Broadcast.com selling to Yahoo. Right. Single security. Correct. Right. Yep. You look at Warren Buffett. 
his concentration in his top five or six holdings make up probably 70 to 80 percent of his portfolio Mm -hmm. keep going down the list yeah and just a a good example of it is let's say you know you have someone that's an executive of, of at a company that's publicly traded and they have you know several hundred thousand shares of the company stock right um and, and we deal with reti- that clientele all the time. Right. And they retire. You know, the conversation that you have is, hey, you know, a lot of people make a lot of money from holding concentrated stock position if the stock does well. But what's the other side of that? That's what if right. the stock doesn't do well for two or three years? And I can tell you right now, listeners. Widowmaker. Yeah, you can go through. I, and I, I use this example on the podcast all the time. Go back to the year 2000. And if I told you that companies like GE would be in the state that they are today or you know give me the top 10 of the S&P no, at that time you. people would be like you're crazy Matt there's no way mm-hmm. and the reason I like to say that is nothing is bulletproof you could be working right now for the top performing company in any sector and it doesn't mean that in a decade it's still going to be there mm-hmm. especially with the disruptions of the technology sector um, amongst how many other sectors that have nothing to do with technology? Right. Yeah. And that's, you know, and that's our job as advisors is to educate yeah. about the risk and talk about risk management. And at the end of the day, it's up to the client on what they want to do. And if they want to live life on the edge and live and die by one stock, that's fine. You know, some years they'll be able to spend $500,000 because the stock had a really good year. And some years they're only going to be able to spend Fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars because the stock's in the dumps. Correct. Right? So, just interesting. And the last comment I have is: most investors do not have the appetite for that type of net worth volatility. Yeah, yeah, yep. And and that's why it's like okay, we diversify that. We can still hold it. We can still participate in the upside if it does really well over the next decade. It's just your liquid net worth is not tied to that company or investment or yes. what have you. Right? Yes. Uh, last thing I had was a research note from Bespoke regarding the NASDAQ. So they said, while any association with 2000 and 2008 is always scary, in every other year that the NASDAQ traded lower in the first three trading days of the year, its rest of the year performance was positive every time. In fact, during the 15 years when the first three days were negative, the average return the rest of the year was a gain of 15.7%, with positive returns 87% of the time. Meanwhile, in the 35 years where it traded higher in the first three trading days of the year, the average rest of the year return was a gain of 10.92%, with positive returns 69% of the time. So again, goes back to your point that... Just because it's off to a bad start year to date doesn't mean it can't catch up and visit or finish the year well in the green. Absolutely. I had no idea you're going to bring that up. You know, and then and next week I'm going to have just so everyone doesn't think we're all rosy and rainbows and butterflies all the time. Next week, I'm going to provide some data that shows the opposite side of the coin from some data points from January and how that tends to play out for the rest of the year. So uh, tune in if you want to see me provide the the bearish side of things and what could potentially happen. I look forward to that. Okay. I'll be ready. (laughs) So um, my first piece I have is on tech spending. And I, I think this is going to surprise you. Okay. So this is a tweet from Beth Kinding 
and she's a technology analyst with the IO Fund. This post uh, is regarding the percentage of IT equipment, software, and R&D spending in regards to total capital spending in nominal GDP, okay? This chart is on our show notes. It goes back quite some time. It goes back to 1959. Mark, can you remind our viewers and listeners how they can access our show notes, please? Yeah, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or Facebook and LinkedIn, uh, Jessup Wealth Management. So what this chart is going to show is back when the chart begins in 1959, 15% of total capital spending was in regards to IT equipment, software, and R&D. You fast forward to the year 2000, it was about 40, 45%. We're now above 50% of of nominal capital spending. I'm sorry, total capital spending and nominal GDP. This was just a shocking statistic to me. Mm -hmm. And the reason I'm bringing this to light is if this doesn't provide justification for how important the technology sector is for the economy and the stock market, I don't know what does, Mark, Mm -hmm. because we've mentioned this on the podcast before, but what a lot of investors don't realize is that when you start um, dividing the market by sectors, technology, financials, energy, healthcare, consumer discretionary, consumer staples, et cetera, technology makes up about 28% and is by far the largest sector of the market. And so I just... You know, people sit there and say, oh, it's too big of a sector of the market. This is a piece of underlying data that tends to support that. Yeah, I agree. And I think it just goes to show you that, you know, how important technology and automation and software is in this day and age. And I don't think it's it's going away anytime soon. I think people are going to continue to innovate and continue to automate. So their operational expenses are cheaper and they can make more money and technology is going to help them, you know, get to a place where they're comfortable at from, you know, a growth standpoint and how much money they're making. And I don't think you're a successful business in this day and age if you're not heavily investing in technology. Yeah. And the other thing I'll say is I think it is a big misperception in the market about people trying to call for peak profit margins. And there have been many notable investors, and one I'll pick on right now, Jeremy Grantham. Not a fan, okay? Because he's a doom and gloom guy. Constantly, this guy's falling, and a broke clock is 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 right two times a day. Mm-hmm. So, um, in the around 2010, he was pounding the table that we are at peak profit margins. There's no way companies can get more efficient. There's no way the profit margins could go up. What do you think's happened since 2010? It exploded. Why? Technology. And it would be stupid in my mind to think that we're not going to continue to innovate. Mm -hmm. We're not going to continue to get more productive. Mm -hmm. Walk into a McDonald's right now, okay? Yeah. You you order from a kiosk. Mm -hmm. If I would have told you a decade ago that you were going to walk into a McDonald's and order off a kiosk, people would have laughed at me. Yeah, that's true. That's and, what, true. and I'm just, you know, it just uh, the, the, the technological side 
and why these companies are getting more and more lean and profitable. It's technology sector. Right. And, you know, another thing that I could see over the next decade or two is, again, I'm not calling for, you know, energy companies to, you know, outperform everything else. But, you know, we're seeing this shift to, to clean power and clean energy is that eventually, you know, that could be another mini technology that, you know, people are going to be heavily investing in to, you know, number one, to satisfy everybody's concern about the environment, but number two, to get more efficient. But even when you're doing that, when you're talking about energy, what does that require? Technology. Absolutely. (laughs) Right. I mean, you know, you're always going to go through these phases where someone develops a technology or a product that makes them the richest person in the world. Right. You have Elon Musk and Bezos right now. Right. Yep. If I had to speculate, the next Musk or Bezos is going to innovate somewhere on that energy side. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if you were if you were a button man, the button I would man, say the same thing. This is statistically, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. Supply chain update. Okay. This is a tweet by Michael Arunet. He's a trader I follow on Twitter. Michael posted a chart on the Baltic Dry Index. Okay. This is a shipping and trade index created by the London-based Baltic Exchange. It measures changes in the cost of transporting various raw materials, such as coal and steel. You want to talk about base data on supply chain, the cost to move goods on a ship, you're at the basics, Mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. As you will see by this chart on our show notes, and Jenna will post it for those viewing on YouTube, the index topped out last year in 2021 and has really come back down over the past three months. Now, this chart also overlays PCE goods inflation. While these two were highly correlated going back to 2014, the goods inflation has yet to really turn like the shipping cost index has. So in essence, the cost to ship stuff has really gotten cheaper, but the cost of goods is still at an inflated level based upon the data, Mark. This could very well be a forward-looking indicator, Mark. Now, I'm not calling for peak inflation supply chain issues just yet, okay? I do think, as I said earlier in the podcast, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, and that the peak pain could be in the spring. But, and I put emphasis on that but, this is a really good sign that the underlying data is starting to support peak supply chain issues and might not feel this way now for people. But I think there will be a different supply chain inflation environment later in the year. My two cents. It's hard to see right when you're in the middle of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's hard to see that. Kind of like the market sell off the third week of January. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it feels like it's always going to continue that way, right? So I just want to throw that out there. What's your initial response when you, you heard what I had to say and you see the chart? Well, yeah, well, looking at the chart, it's just funny because we were talking about magazine covers today. It looks like, you know, these shipping costs peaked slightly after the midway point in 2021. And I think it was in the early fall that we were discussing another magazine cover on Barron's. You're right. You're that right. had all the ships out at yes. bay, yes, you know, I not being that. able to come into port. So this just again, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to 
pat ourselves on the back, but that's just like another example. It's like everyone, this, this concern is on everybody's radar. And usually that's the point where it's like, it's at its worst right now. And you know, things are going to start to get better. So it's kind of like when financial market news hits mainstream media, mm-hmm. you're typically you're too a, late. Yeah. Like, you're typically at the, at <clears throat> either the best or the worst of it. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Okay. Funny how you talked about investor sentiment. I think Mark is bugging my office, Jenna. I think he's, you, are you like watching over my shoulder as I prepare my show notes? It's either that or our, our wives would, if they were on the podcast, would say uh, that we're essentially the same person. So that might have something to do with it as well. I love it. Eminem squared. <laughs> All right. So update I've been on. Eminem my whole life with my twin brother, Matt. We were Eminem. And now with business partner, Matt Eminem. See? It's worked out well so far. It has worked out well. So update on investor sentiment. A trader I follow on Twitter with the handle macro charts. He puts out good stuff. I like like this cat posted an interesting tweet in regards to investor sentiment. We're seeing some historic pessimism. Readings like this tend to make market bottoms, in my opinion. Here's what he wrote. Investor sentiment is at a historic pessimism. Worse than March of 2020. We all remember March of 2020. It's going to mm-hmm. continue. We don't know mm-hmm. how bad this virus is going to get. Market's selling off, free-falling. Mm-hmm. Worse than December of 2018. Not as bad as March of 2020, but it was bad. That was a bad fourth quarter. Right. Okay? Even in 2008, similar spikes led to violent bear market rallies. And lastly, when investors finally got this negative, the 2000 to 2002 tech crash was over. We have the chart to support this data posted by this gentleman. Mm -hmm. My two cents first, Mark. I find extreme sentiment readings as a good contrarian indicator. The market has a big wall of worry to climb. And I love that because when reading for this extreme in this pessimism camp, those who wanted to sell have sold Mm -hmm. and will most likely end up buying back at higher prices. Yeah. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, if you... you guys can see the chart if you want on the on the show notes or if you're watching on YouTube right now. But um, I mean, it tends to be a pretty good indicator of, you know, at least a short term bottom. Um, the other thing I'll throw out there is that, you know, technically we're not in a bear market yet. But when we have been, there have been rallies in a bear market of 30 percent, 50 percent at times. Yep. So, you know, that stuff could happen within a larger downtrend, Um, but we're not, I don't think by looking at this chart, we're not in a large downtrend right now. No, Um, it overlays the S&P going back to what, 85, 86? Yeah. 86? But it's just, it's just more evidence that there's, there's so much pessimism out there right now and everyone is so negative just with everything going on. People are blaming COVID, people are blaming Russia and Ukraine, people are blaming that the stock market's too expensive. Inflation, supply chain. Interest rates are rising. You can go down the list. You know, and it's pretty. And my, my biggest point is if you're if an overwhelming majority is this pessimistic, it's going to translate to how their account is invested. And I can tell you right now, it's not going to be at equity levels it was when they're really bullish. Mm-hmm. And so that means lower allocation of stocks, more cash on the sidelines, and most likely a majority who wanted to sell have sold. Mm hmm. 
that's all positive to help the market begin to climb that wall of worry. Right. Remember, if there's no excuses not to invest, that's when you need to be concerned. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And again, and it might be next week, it might be two weeks from now, but I do have some more data on, um, you know, starts to the year uh, for midterm election years. Ooh. And it really hasn't been an abnormal year so far. It's, yeah. it's kind of normal for midterm election year. So, yeah, I will provide more insight and data on that in the weeks to come. Okay. Uh, financial planning topic of the week comes from a blog post written by Ben Carlson titled The Pandemic Has Made Everyone Richer. And I think, Matt, this will set the stage for just a mini conversation between us um, on if the Fed got it right with their actions during the pandemic. OK, mm-hmm. um, so he says the net worth of American households has gone from one hundred and ten trillion to one hundred and thirty seven trillion since the pandemic disrupted our lives in the first quarter of twenty twenty, according to data from the Federal Reserve through the end of the third quarter of twenty twenty one. As is often the case, those gains have not been equally distributed. It's no surprise that the top 1% have seen their wealth surge throughout this ordeal. They're the ones who predominantly hold financial assets, and financial assets have had a really nice two-year run, so this makes sense. This one may surprise you. The bottom 50% have also seen their wealth soar. In fact, on a relative basis, when compared to pre-pandemic levels, the bottom 50% has seen the biggest percentage gain in net worth out of every group. So since uh, Q4 of 2019, the top 1% has seen their wealth grow by 29.8%, and the bottom 50% has seen their wealth grown by 74%. You're not hearing this in mainstream media. No, which is which is kind of interesting. I had, I had no idea until I read this article. Interesting. He says it wasn't hard to predict the rich would get richer, but when this thing got under or when this thing got underway, I'm not so sure anyone expected the people on the low end of the wealth scale to benefit so much. It turns out that giving people money and paying them more is good for their bottom line. But an interesting dynamic is playing out in the middle class. Those households are slowly but surely seeing their share of the pie shrink. This cohort made up 37% of the country's wealth in 2003. It's now under 28% of the total. Meanwhile, the share of wealth owned by the top 1% has gone from 25% in 2003 to more than 32% as of the latest reading. While everyone is richer than they were just a few short years ago, consumer sentiment is falling off a cliff. There are many reasons for this. We're all fed up with the pandemic and people really hate inflation. But I also think uh, a big part of this stems from the fact that it's not easy for certain individuals, households, or groups of people to feel like they're a part of an unfair system. Seeing other people get richer at a faster pace than you can mess with your brain. So even with all the wealth at all-time highs, a booming stock market, and the highest economic growth in decades, many people are still unhappy. This doesn't make sense from a textbook perspective. It does make sense from a human nature perspective. Unfortunately, most of us see the world through the lens of relative, not absolute gains. Agreed. So a couple things to unpack here. Number one, in your opinion, did the Fed get it right and did what it needed to do during the pandemic? I thought that they, um, with interest rates, I'm okay with it. With actual uh, QE, printing of money, they went way too far and did it for too long. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I agree that I think they did it for too long. Um, Especially the printing of money. Yeah. But I think at first on the onset of it, with all of the government shutdowns and regulations, I think they got it right by providing relief to a lot of people. I'm not talking about the length that they did it for, but initially I think they did what they needed to do or else we would have experienced much harder times. Yeah. And my other my other uh, observation is, um, well, it's more of a question for you. Do you think only raising and lowering interest rates by 0.25 percent usually is antiquated? Do you think they should be in a position to raise and lower interest rates in smaller increments? Very well could be. Very well could be. And I think that people forget that, you know, we've been in this long term falling rate environment for a long time. I'm talking about like 50 years, not to say that there aren't periods along that downtrend when interest rates go up, but then they come back down and the lower trend resumes. You know, I don't think people need to be worried about the Fed raising rates to 10%. Like, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't, yeah. I don't know if that ever is going to happen again. I can tell you the way that the leverage is overall in the economy. I think, you know, my, my quick reaction to that is, can this economy support, you know, two, three, 4% interest rates on the Fed funds? I think it can. Yeah. What I don't think it can handle is anything probably above five or six. Yeah. No, I agree with that. And I think it's just got to be, you know, methodical and, you know, be previewed to the market that interest rates are going up so people can prepare for it. I mean, let's just I'm just going to say it. This is an unpopular view, but I'm just going to say it. You, if if a business or a person can't handle uh, interest rates going to three percent right now, something is very wrong. Yeah. With the business. Yeah. I'm I just going to say that. it. Yeah. And that may be an unpopular view, but that's reality. Right. If you're that levered as a business and you can't you can't adjust to interest rates going up by three percent, something's wrong. Then yeah, you overstepped. Yeah, something's you did wrong. something wrong. Um, but you know, I think that this Truth is bombs, Jenna. This is <laughs> this is a uh, a really eye opening thing because you know I think everyone's in the camp that and again we're not we don't get into politics on this show, but you know everyone's been pounding the table on how the the bottom 50 percent has been screwed over the past decade and i think this is a positive step that they you know that those people that needed the help got the help that they received now was the whole thing perfect no mm-hmm. i think a lot of people got money that didn't need it sure um but you know <laughs> i don't know how i would react if i was the fed chair during a pandemic you know yeah, again you know um my biggest thing is interest rates I'm in agreement with. I think the printing of money for as long as they did it and the magnitude for which they did it, part of me thinks that um, it was done also for the global financial markets, mm-hmm. not just the U.S. And, you know, their mandate is full employment in America and their mandate is inflation in the U.S. But unfortunately, as we become interconnected, with the rest of the world on an economic basis, I think that the Fed has to take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. And my, and I'm not in their head, I haven't seen their detailed notes behind the scenes, but my guess is, is they made these decisions based upon global basis. Yeah. 
my two cents. Yeah, I think that did too. And then the la- the other thing I wanted to unpack here is is the the psychology aspect of it that all of us, you know, see our world through relative gains and not absolute gains. And talk, deep, talk more about that. Yeah. So I like I like to look at investments on a relative level because you're comparing apples to apples, right? You're comparing one stock to one stock or an index to an index or a commodity to a commodity, right? Pepsi to Coke. GE yes. to United Technologies, yeah. Apple to Microsoft. Correct. Not pure apples to apples, but in the same sector. Right. But I think that's a very dangerous thing to do when you're like, I'm person A and I'm comparing myself to my neighbor who's person B because those two people have completely different financial situations. That's comparing apples to a candy bar, <laughs> in yeah, my it's, opinion. It's, it's not even to another fruit. Right. So I think that, you know, on an emotional level, that can do a lot of damage if you're comparing yourself to other people. And if you're like, hey, my neighbor is up 50 percent on the year and I'm only up 10 percent on the year. It's like, well, you there's there's so many other moving parts there that it's really not fair to compare yourself to someone else unless you have the same job, you have the same income, you have the same investments, you have the same amount of kids, you live in the same uh, priced house, same square footage house, same, yeah, job, same family, same, same family education. situation. I can go on and on and on and on, but you see where I'm getting at with yeah. that is, you know, the, the biggest thing I can do for people's, you know, uh, you know, mental health is, is when you're comparing your situation to others, just don't do it. Just compare yourself to yourself in your own situation. And let's talk about your gains and not somebody else's. Absolutely love it. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, the historical way that people would say this in the past, Mark, is, you know, comparing yourself to the Joneses, right? mm -hmm. It'd be kind of the generic way that people would would kind of say this. And it's dangerous because, you know, I, I think that, you know, at times everyone falls into the trap of, okay, physical things will, you know, make me more happy. And there are circumstances where that's very true or make your life easier. But just because someone else is, is doing something or someone else buys that vacation home in Florida doesn't mean that you need to do it to fulfill your happiness or your life. Yeah. You might want to. It might be a desire. Mm-hmm. But again, I think doing the comparison, not a healthy thing. No, no, it's not. It's, and it's not going to get you anywhere. It's not going to change anything. <laughs> no. You know. So, yeah. So that was an interesting, interesting one that I wanted to uh, to bring up. But um, anything else we want to leave listeners with before we end the week uh, we still have a lot of earnings uh, over the next especially 10 days a lot of earnings reports expect you know if you're watching say an individual name and you see a, a big move could be very likely they reported earnings either up or down um, you know so far I think the bar has been set low and people have been surprising which has been a good reaction to the market um, I'll just finalize in saying I think the market's paying very close attention uh, to inflation, uh, supply chain, any sort of words the Fed is saying, and corporate earnings. Um, not sure how the whole geopolitical environment is going to end up, um, but right now it doesn't seem to be a primary focus of the market. Not saying it couldn't. I want to be specific, but those seem to be what the market's focused on right now. Yeah, yeah, agreed. All right, we'll leave it there for the week. Uh, for those in the Northeast and the Midwest, uh, stay safe during the next couple of days. Over get, your, this. get your snow shovel ready. Yeah. Rest your back. Yep. You're about to be shoveling, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, exactly. Including myself. So uh, try to 
try to minimize travel, I guess, and see. If, I mean, I guess we'll see if we get hard as they they say as hard as we're going to get hit. But I think it's going to be feast or famine. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. But I uh, hope everyone stays warm this weekend. We'll be back with you next week for episode number 136. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.